Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org ebook. What happened to me was I saw myself turning into a person that I didn't want to be. I saw myself turning into this miserable, cynical, negative uh, person, which was not, it was not me. That is Monique Valcour, a past professor of organizational behavior turned executive coach, describing her personal experience with burnout so severe that it led to the grueling decision to leave academics and pursue a career as an executive coach working with others struggling with burnout or other job-related stressors. On today's episode of The Resilient Surgeon, Monique shares her story and personal experience with burnout and how that experience shaped her approach to coaching literally thousands of high-performance executives and leaders across the globe. I am delighted and honored to bring you Monique Valcour. Monique started her adult journey at Brown University where she majored in French and theater arts. After graduation, she somehow found her way into a job in higher education administration, which led to a master's in higher education at Harvard and ultimately a PhD in organizational behavior at Cornell. After graduating from Cornell, Monique worked as an assistant professor of organization studies at Boston College for six years. And then she moved to France with her family to work at one of Europe's most elite schools the EDHEC Business School, and I'm not gonna try and pronounce what those letters stand for, where she worked as a professor until 2015. Unfortunately for Monique and her family, but fortunately for us and the many people Monique has helped since, she ended up suffering from what sounds like a fairly severe case of burnout, which ultimately led her to leave her job and pursue a new career as an executive coach and keynote speaker. Monique's second career as an executive coach is driven by her personal declaration of human rights at work. That is, 
we all have the right to work that enriches and enlivens us rather than diminishing us. Monique has written extensively for the Harvard Business Review. In fact, it was her outstanding articles that led to my discovery of her, and she has coached and consulted with literally thousands of people and organizations across the globe, including women leaders at the United Nations, Eli Lilly, the London Business School, and countless other executives and leaders. What makes me so excited to have Monique on our podcast is the combination of perspectives she brings as a woman, as an academician, as someone who's experienced severe burnout, and as an executive coach to so many high-performing individuals. Monique, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon podcast. Well, thank you, Michael, and thanks for that lovely introduction. I, you took me on a little trip down memory lane, <laughs> all the way back yeah. to my undergraduate career. <laughs> Well, I'm going to even take you a little farther back just for a couple of minutes, because I am curious, I, you know, the path, tell us a little bit about your early years and why did you choose French and theater as a double major? And then finally, in that same thread, what is that apparent kind of weird pivot to get a job in higher education administration after you graduated from Brown University? Right, right. Well, there is actually a logic to this, or at least there, there was at the time. So, you know, I, I am an only child. I grew up in a small town on the coast of Massachusetts, was always very, very academically inclined and always had a strong bent to the humanities. So I'm a real language person. I've always loved writing. I've always loved foreign languages. And I had, you know, been active in theater as a high school student. I had mm -hmm. uh, kind of completed all of the French instruction available at my school and was uh, as a senior in high school was taking French at Harvard, which was uh, about an hour away from my home. So I, you know, wanted to continue with that, um, that, you know, that that area that I was already pretty advanced in. And I spent my junior year in Paris. Um, and uh, so it became fairly easy for me to combine the, the French and the theater, although the theater actually was more of a dancer than uh, an actor. Hmm. Um, so I had, you know, I had those double humanities majors and then I did nothing with them for a very long time. I remember as a senior at Brown going to some of the uh, kind of receptions put on by the career services office. You know, it was the typical suspects. It was management consulting, et cetera. And I would go and hear their spiel and think, oh, this doesn't appeal to me at all. And I really liked the academic environment. So I ended up getting a first job as a director of admissions at a really small women's college. Did that for three years. And I thought, oh, I, I am going to spend the rest of my life in academic settings because I just like the setting. So I ended up at that point in time going to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and then spending a few more, more years working as a higher ed administrator. But while I was doing that, I was also, I was friends with lots of faculty members. And I thought, well, that's the life actually. Being an administrator is not at all kind of intellectually interesting. I really like this faculty thing, like the idea of live, being part of a scholarly community, et cetera. So, you know, had my kids, put my husband through school, and then went and um, got a PhD at Cornell in organizational behavior. And then, you know, got a 
tenure track job as a professor, et cetera. I said, this is it for me. The rest of my life, I have my whole career mapped out. I know what I'm going to do. And then as yes. you it described, <laughs> I ended up burning yeah. out and thought, yeah. oh my God, I can't live like this. I'm, I got to do something else. Well, that's, that's great. And, you know, another, another thing that I noted in some of the things that you've talked about is <clears throat> after you graduated from Cornell, the spark began. And what was that spark? And what was the drive? Uh, you know, the, it, we talk about organizational studies and, and that kind of, what does mm -hmm. that mean exactly? But you've really, if, if I understand correctly, you've focused in on the career elements of, mm -hmm. of organizations and, and individuals. So mm -hmm. what is that spark and why that arena for you? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about this in a, in a long time, but you know, when I contrast my uh, doctoral studies to my undergraduate studies, going into French and theater was just a sort of automatic thing because that's what I was already doing. There wasn't mm -hmm. a sense of uh, having a passion for those subject areas. Um, whereas once I had been working for a few years and observing the people around me, I thought, wow, people in organizational settings are really strange creatures. What is going on here? <laughs> you know, why do I, why am I sometimes, you know, happy at work? Why do I sometimes hate the people I work with? Like, yeah, why do yeah. people not communicate and all these types of questions? So I really wanted to, um, you know, for decades now, I've really been on a mission to help improve the quality of people's experience at work. Um, thus my uh, kind of uh, bill of human rights at work that you read, uh, you know, I really do believe mm -hmm. that. And when I was at Cornell, I was, had the privilege of being funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation through uh, a research institute called um, the, it was a Institute of Work and Family Careers. So it focused on the work family interface and how people construct their careers. And it was a very multidisciplinary group of um scholars, you know, psychologists, sociologists, uh, labor economists, etc. So we were looking at those issues through multiple disciplinary lenses. And that sort of led me into the, the research streams that I pursued um, when I was actively doing uh, scholarly research. I see. So there must have been something about the sort of <clears throat> the hard problem in a way of, you know, what you talked about, liking, loving work one minute, hating it the next. And trying to sort that out that appealed to you. And is that, is that right? I mean, I think another what thing that was part of it for me was as a, as a doctoral student, I was married with two small children. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids were the, my little daughter was nine months old and our older daughter was, had just turned three when I started my PhD. So I think it was, uh, you know, in all branches of psychology, people often sort of study themselves in some way. Um, and it was just, it just seemed like such an incredibly practical problem to study how do people manage to, you know, the, the interface of their work domain and their, their personal domain and what are the identities that people construct around these domains and how do they prioritize and how do they enrich or, um, you know, diminish each other, et cetera. So there's so many fascinating questions that have to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Well, okay, now we'll dive into the burnout issue. And uh, I'd like to know, you know, it, I certainly experienced this. I think I had a pretty significant case of burnout, but I, I imagine, you know, since burnout is not like you go in and you get a test and 
okay, right. I've got burnout, that that's a problem. And, and you're in the weeds of your existence, the struggles at home and at work and everything's going on. How do you, how do you get out of that weedy environment and up onto the balcony and actually see what's going on? And, and what are the red flags that should alert you to the potential mm -hmm. downward spiral that you're actually on that's dangerous? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very tricky. Um, you know, so burnout is an occupational stress syndrome that has these three primary components. There's uh, and, and you don't have to have all three. And sometimes people have them in different combinations or different burnout profiles. But the three components are um, emotional exhaustion. So the feeling that you, you just have nothing left to give. You know, and it can be, you can feel physically exhausted. You can feel that you just don't care at all anymore. You know, a sense of you've lost all your positivity, et cetera. The second one is uh, the second component of burnout is cynicism. So this often shows up as people having a sense of having lost their meaning uh, of, of feeling that the work that they used to care deeply about doesn't matter anymore, that they you know, uh, surgeons not having the same degree of care for their patients or just feeling like, ah, oh, here comes another body or, you know, not having the same degree of sense of connection to your colleagues and so forth. Um, so this is kind of loss of meaning. And then the third element is reduced professional efficacy. And this is really tricky. So things start, you start to feel like I'm just not good at this, or it's so much harder than it used to be. What's going on? I can't, concentrate, you know, why, you know, I'm, I'm getting further and further behind or more and more overwhelmed. And so people, you know, what do they do? They tend to kind of buckle down and, and try and work harder and work less efficiently and cut back on socializing and sleeping in an effort to catch up, which is all a downward spiral. Yes. And particularly with that last um, element of it, when you are in a, this diminished state in terms of your, your sense of capacity, it's a really tough place from which to make decisions and exercise your agency and take steps to look after your well-being or to change your situation. So it really, really is tricky. And a lot of people also experience the sense of, you know, becoming overwhelmed, burning out as um, a personal failing. So oftentimes it's accompanied by shame. And people don't want to talk about it, you know, so it's like, how come that person is so much more negative than they used to be or is so much, you know, shorter tempered with their friends and loved ones? And, uh, you know, why is that person drinking so much more alcohol than they used to? Mm -hmm. And, you mm -hmm. know, why are they, you know, putting on a lot of weight and becoming incredibly cynical, et cetera? So well, you hit, um, you hit a yeah. number of points there. I mean, those, so those are observational details in a way, aren't mm. they? More irritable, you know, mm -hmm. you're gaining some weight, you're having that extra glass of wine. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you talked about the emotional exhaustion, the feeling you can't go on. I, I could certainly relate to that. Mm. I was about 57 years old. And I remember thinking I am just plain sick of operating. I didn't mm -hmm. want to operate anymore. I was really good at it. I enjoyed it. Uh, but what I really, you know, this is, gets at kind of another side that you talk about things that energize us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that energized me most about my academic career was working with residents and 
I was mm. a program director of general surgery. And I mean, I cherish that and I could have poured my entire life and soul into that. Yeah. And, you know, that was a side project for me. And, and I, and I remember so vividly thinking that, you know, I'm just being weak. Uh, right. You know, I'm not stepping up to the plate and more muscling didn't help at all. Exactly. It just backfires. Yeah, exactly. But it's so great that you had a sense of what were the elements of your work that you did find energizing because burnout is fundamentally a state of resource depletion. And so that's one of the key strategies is to look for what are the elements of my work? What are the moments where I feel most alive, where I have a sense of meaning, where I have a sense of contributing something of value and really lean into those activities, those relationships. So we often have more ability than we realize to make slight changes in how we are apportioning our attention, our energy, even in things such as how, you know, what perspective we apply to certain situations and tasks. If we can reframe them in a way that is more empowering to us that uh, you know, kind of uh, endows them with more meaning that can be, you know, one strategy for rebuilding, replenishing some of the, the, the diminished energy reserves. Yeah, that's uh, great. I, I'm going to, if I could just uh, mention, you know, the, the role of uh, career culture mm-hmm. in this process. Um, so I have a notion uh, that I think is a good one, of course, since I have the notion that we all have a personal operating system. Mm. You may not be aware of it, but we do have a personal operating system. And that personal operating system is born of our childhood upbringing, you know, some genetics, and then mm-hmm. career culture. And, you know, in my case, you know, I was arrested all these times, you know, I had to, you know, work my way out of a lot of trouble, uh, dropped out of high school. So that's a major part of my personal operating system, you know, pushing and driving, but then surgery, the surgery training program, the residency, you know, it inculcated me and it still does most residents with four, you know, habits that are really quite ubiquitous, say yes to everything, discipline to be, Mm -hmm. to keep going, no matter what, be strong, no matter what. And of course, self-sufficiency and you know, all those four habits that were part of my personal operating system, I found, you know, they serve me so well. They're good until they're not. They serve me incredibly well until they didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, the paradigm just started to fail me. And, and so what I found myself, and this is getting back to what you're talking about is, you know, I'm on doing committees, I'm doing task forces, I'm doing all this stuff that I didn't want to do but yet I felt I needed to, to be a part of the community and be a part of the process. Uh, and I just didn't scale back and really focus in on the things that mattered most to me. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about those perspective shifts and the other elements that you know are so crucial that we actually do have agency over within our work? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I love the idea of a personal operating system and all the different elements, the forces, internal family, occupational culture, et cetera, that come into play. And it is true that, you know, all of our strengths, all of our habits of mind, um, 
you know, have a dark side and a, and a bright side, basically. So any strength can be overused. Um, any sort of cognitive habit is not universally applicable. Um, and, you know, so those, those four, uh, kind of principles that enable you to get through a surgical residency, which is well known to be a grueling exhaustion inducing, you know, et cetera. I think it was, uh, Several years ago, I don't know if it was the AMA or what body uh, put some limit on surge, uh, residents are not supposed to work more than 80 hours a week or something like Correct. that. And I think it hours. was actually surgeons who were pushing back against that the most. Like, well, they're not oh, going to totally. learn that way. Was, they're not going to they're not gonna have the, you know, the formation that's essential <laughs> to, to know how to do this work. <laughs> no, the moaning in the hallways of academic surgical training <laughs> programs was 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 you could hear it miles away. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, and so those, uh, you know, those four habits were not written on tablets by God, you know, they are, <laughs> they, they are, they're occupational habits that have arisen. Yeah. And if you were to look at those uh, from a sort of, you know, from a balcony level view, like, what is it that we're, we're trying to achieve? What are the positives and potential downsides of inculcating these principles you know are there ways that we can work differently to have better patient outcomes more sustainable you know work better health and well-being of our surgeons um, you know you you may well find that yes in fact there are so I, I love your emphasis on agency and on having a you know, I think it's really um, useful to have a sense of meaning in every moment, kind of what, why am I making the choice that I'm making right now? How yes, does this serve yes. me? What is yeah. it that I'm, you know, today, this day, what's the most important thing for me? And is what the choice that I'm making right now helping me to advance towards that? Or is it taking me off on a sidetrack? You know, this is a, a wonderful maxim to, to kind of pronounce. I can tell you my own experience is that I'm often aware while I'm working on some tasks that there's another task I would prefer to be working on, but I sort of want to get this one out of the way first. And then by the time I get to the one I want to do, I'm feeling like, oh, I'm kind of burned out now. I want to go out for a walk. Um, you know, so being aware that we, by being on autopilot, we will often put ourselves into a less than optimal mind, body, energetic state and ability to focus, uh, you know, I think the, the goal is to become more conscious and intentional at all times of the choices that we're making and whether or not they're serving us. Yeah, that is the key, conscious and intentional. And you talk about that in some of your work too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember I, cause I retired from surgery several years ago and I just remember autopilot is exactly what I was on. You know, I, the, the, I'd wake up and, you know, the tennis shoes were on and I'm jogging through the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of addictive and fun. And, you know, a lot of, uh, um, you know, ego gratification, right. You know, from being a surgeon and, and the work we do, which is so important, but, you know, so often a complete lack of intentionality other than to get the job done mm -hmm. during the day without any serious, you know, thought about where am I going in life and what do I want to do? And, you know, what is this day about and what can I mm -hmm. do in a minute? 
Mm-hmm. So, and I think in in being in on autopilot like that, you are really surrendering a lot of your your freedom and your agency because you end, you end up being much more reactive. You know, you're probably having lower quality interactions in the workplace and at home. And if you're having low quality interactions, you're probably blaming it on the other people with whom you're interacting and their unreasonableness or, yeah. or what have you. Um, yeah. And, and essentially surrendering awareness of your own ability, you know, your own interpersonal impact and your ability to have an interpersonal impact that is more consistent with your best self or the person you want to be. Yeah, crucial. There's a, there's a side note here, you know, that I learned recently about a set of, I knew about the molecules, but I didn't understand uh, what they did, brain reward molecules called the here and now reward molecules, mm. endocannabinoids, oxytocin, mm-hmm. endorphins, uh, as opposed to dopamine. Now, I suspect that a lot of cardiothoracic surgeons are got plenty of dopamine on board. I mean, these mm-hmm. are pursuing, you know, you know, high future stakes projects and, you know, development. Mm, right. But the here, we, we risk uh, sidelining the here and now reward chemicals because those are the ones that are released when we cuddle, pet yep. a dog, eat food that we enjoy, mm-hmm. meditate, exercise, yep. exercise, take a walk. Mm-hmm. And your, your concept of intentionality is so important here. And I remember a line in one of the articles you wrote, but you must, you, you said mm. you must, when you're feeling this way, you know, you're feeling in the early stages of burnout, you've got to take the time. Mm. and toggle into those activities, exercise, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the like. Uh, mm. So to see a physiologic construct around that is, was for me very useful. Right. Absolutely. And the fact that you've probably also seen some of the work on uh, kind of ultradian and circadian rhythms yeah. and that we yeah. are, you know, kind of at, we perform at our peak when we have these alternating, you know, like 90 minute to two hour periods of activity with a little rest period in between. So, yeah, yeah. you know, the idea of the, oh, we can't have our residents working only 80 hours. It's like, you're actually causing them to underperform. I remember seeing some documentary on this and it was, you know, following this one doc through this whole shift and interviewing him at the end. And his cognitive impairment was like somebody who just stumbled out of a bar after no, no, eight right. hours or something, you know, literally, yeah, at the same level of exactly of being intoxicated. Yeah. All right. So you're an executive coach, mm-hmm. and I think so. One of the problems that I encountered, and I know, is ubiquitous in the world of surgery and medicine, and that is the uh, sense that you're alone when you're struggling. Mm, and, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you're you're ashamed, embarrassed. Uh, you feel weak if you're admitting that you're having an emotional problem, family problems, you know, whatever. I remember I had a death on the table. It was a tragic death on the table. And I went into work and just went to work the next day. And I was devastated mm. by it. Uh, and you had to pretend that you were okay. And, you know, so that, that piece isolates physicians. And I think that, you know, the best performers in the world have coaches, uh, and they need outside help. And I think that an executive coach like yourself can play a real pivotal role in helping 
physicians mm. and cardiothoracic surgeons to help mm -hmm. become their best selves and scale that back. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in executive coaching of burned out people or you know what, what strategies you use and how it can be so effective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I try and help people to basically become more effective at working with their own mind. And my idea is to help to provide the foundation that people are able to carry on by themselves. So I think about your career in whatever field you're in as this lifelong self-directed longitudinal experiment. And I think it is really liberating to take this uh, kind of frame or a spirit of continuous learning and experimentation in along with you for the journey. Um, because it is, you know, that that sense of having your back against the wall and any bad decision could put you onto a trajectory where from which there is no return. I mean, oftentimes you actually have a, there's a lot more dynamic, a lot more plasticity in the career than mm -hmm. you may expect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the moment when you're experiencing uh, some sort of crisis, you might think oh, that, you know, this is it. It's always going to be this way. I, there's nothing I can do except grit my teeth and, and just kind of attempt to present as stoic as possibly. Um, and that is a really, I mean, that is like putting your brain in prison to do that. So in executive coaching, I, what I try and do is to help people to see, you know, how are you looking at this situation right now? And, and the one thing that's wonderful about having an executive coach is it's specifically set up as a, a confidential, safe, supportive mm -hmm. environment in which you can pour out your whole everything that's happening internally and you're not going to be judged and it's going to be interesting i mean i have coaching clients who said to me this must be so hard for you to listen to this or i i can't believe you know i think no it's fascinating and yeah. you know how does it feel to you to to kind of let this stuff go um because then what we can do you know just to just to say, oh, this is, this is what happened and this is how I'm thinking about it. All of a sudden, it's not like you're holding this hot burning coal that you can't let anybody see the smoke or the flame from. It's like, oh, I just put that thing down. Okay, now we can look at it and be curious about it and see what's happening. You know, so I will help people to uncover the patterns of thinking and habit making. I do a lot of work with things like metaphors um, you know, to this morning I had, I was working with a company founder, a coaching client of mine, and we were constructing, uh, kind of unearthing more, what is his internal board of directors? What are the different parts of him, the different strengths, the different kind of tendencies that arise and uh, having named them all, how, you know, which ones are more alive, which ones do he, he realized he has this sort of explorer part of himself that has spent, you know, had spent years going out to foreign countries as sort of a, you know, commerce person and connecting with people in a very different setting and being able to adapt himself. And he realized that part is like parked in a garage somewhere, Yeah, you know, dead. so his dead. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so his kind of, homework is to like go out and listen to some world music and go to different parts of the city that he doesn't go to and try some different food and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I would, I help people to recognize, to, to bring that awareness and that consciousness and that intentionality. So like what actually is happening 
to me when, you know, I have this experience. I'm sitting at, so, you know, I was on the phone with somebody the other day who's a chief medical officer who feels this sense of always having to know all the answers. And if he does, and, and that he knows that this gets in the way of being innovative because he has this deep sense of actually, I'm an imposter. Uh, I actually don't know what the strategic uh, approach should be here. Um, you know, so we were helping him to, at that moment, be able to kind of feel that feeling when it arises, help him to understand how he tends to react and have some resources that he can connect to immediately. So we did some work around kind of what are the things he's most proud of, what are the strengths he relies on when he's, uh, you know, in a moment when he's not under stress that he can access when he is in a stressful situation. Um, so, you know, part of the work of executive coaching is helping people to uh, be more aware of and more able to access their whole set of resources uh, at any given moment. So you become, I think, through coaching, more agile, more aware, less reactive, more intentional. Um, and it's just, it's, it's fascinating work. Um, and I, you know, find that pretty much everybody I work with tends to really enjoy the process, or at least they... I, I am seem to say that they do unless they're putting on quite a good face but you can read people pretty well so yeah i bet you can and you know I, I if only i had had somebody like you in my corner you know 12 13 years ago or actually frankly much earlier so i could have designed mm. the process uh right out of the gate and you know i i will just add as a caveat i, I could just hear mike mattis version one i call my old self mike mattis version personal operating system version one yeah if, if I had been listening to you talking about, well, you know, go out and listen to some music or, you know, let's practice some gratitude, I would have thought, what a bunch of BS. I mean, this, yeah. you know, because I've, I'm so used to, I need strong action. All right. right. That's the stuff that works, not yeah. this mumbo jumbo, soft, fuzzy stuff. But of course, uh, in my, these last years, I've learned just the incredible power of those things. And they feel nebulous because there's no sort of immediate like, you know, you, 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 you go to the gym and you work out, you feel stiff, right. you know, it's not, it's not quite like that. These are processes that you kind of kind of work and, and feel and, and, and become good with. And it, it's mm -hmm. really quite magical, the, the impact that these things can have. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Magical. I think a lot of people are uh, addicted to have that action addiction. Yes. Like I have to, you know, it's, it's very, you know, many people operate under a, um, you know, ready, fire, aim approach. Yeah, you know, especially I, I'm of, an executive. I can I can announce a decision. Go do this. You know, make yes. it harder. Uh, so we're being ambitious. And then, you know, I the only reason I just sent everybody in my company into a panic attack was to comfort myself. Actually, yeah. So you feel like you're doing something, right? Yeah, exactly. Classic, yeah. classic syndrome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So if you now suspect that you've got some of the symptoms or you're concerned about your, you know, potentially being burned out or heading in that direction, what are the, some of the specific things, you know, you can do to mitigate that and turn the, turn the ship around, so to speak? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, we've said already, this is a problem that tends to be experienced individually, but our lives are always interpersonal. So I think, uh, you know, if you're kind of sitting on the fence, 
reaching out to the people who know you and getting their observations. So make an appointment with your internist, uh, have a checkup and, you know, let him or her know how you're feeling and see what the reaction is. I, I have one uh, coaching client who's come back to me, you know, we worked together a few years ago and then he resurfaced and his doctor had said to him, uh, you are in a real red zone here. And I've seen you this be like this three years ago. So whatever mm-hmm. you did three years ago, it's time to do it again. Mm-hmm. So that's when he resurfaced, mm-hmm. um, you know, so get a read on what is showing it because burnout, as, you know, as other stress syndromes has real physiological consequences, of course, you know, coronary disease, hypertension, uh, you know, depressed, uh, um, immune function, et cetera, uh, weight gain, all of the, the, the usual suspects. Um, so check in, get a, get a physical check in with the people who know you and just ask, you know, what are you, what are you seeing in me today? How would you describe me today versus, you know, how I usually am or how I am at my best? You know, one thing for me when I was experiencing burnout is, I got to the point where all I ever talked about with my friends was how much I hated my job and how awful it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just this continuous stream of negativity. And, you know, my husband, who's just an incredibly kind, happy, generous person, got to the point where he was like, just nothing ever comes out of you except pure negativity. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, affecting my ability to parent my teenage daughter, et cetera. Uh, so you can get a read from other people. And um, then it's, you know, a question of looking to replenish. So if you, if you keep in mind this simple idea that burnout is about resource depletion, I sometimes uh, do exercises with people where I actually say kind of, here's your dashboard, you know, you have a gauge for your physical well-being, your cognitive well-being, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, where are you right now? Um, so physically, you know, paying attention to your sleep is vitally important. That is, I know, a corner that many surgeons cut. Uh, and we do have an increasing amount of evidence about from, uh, you know, biological research about how dangerous that is, making sure that you're getting some exercise, that you're eating well, um, and then cognitively making sure that you're taking breaks, that you're, you know, engaging in some form of practice, like I'm a huge advocate of meditation, that you're shutting off your phone at night, uh, that you're engaging and maybe in some other things, reading, etc. that you find stimulating. Um, the emotional elements are vitally important. So when we're really feeling overwhelmed and burnt out, we often tend to withdraw socially. But in fact, it's a really important time to be spending time with people who energize us. Doesn't have to be a lot of time, but um, you know, to have positive connections is is a real boost. So you know, I really encourage people to pay attention to what are all the different elements in your life over the course of your week or what have you, where you're feeling your your energy is up a little bit. Identify those things that do provide a good burst and and consciously build them in and then look for the things that are really diminishing and consciously try and reduce your exposure to them. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you might want a sabbatical or sometimes 
it, you want to make a career transition as you and I both did. Yeah. You know, those, you know, a lot of the times, you know, these topics of sleep and nutrition and, and exercise and meditation and that they always, those are things we can do when we have a little bit of free time, it seems mm. like, you know, uh, and, and the intentionality piece is so critical. I mean, you know, without the baseline sleep, uh, nutrition and exercise, you know, you're at risk and lack of connection too. You're Absolutely. At risk for elements of metabolic syndrome and the yep. disastrous complications of, of that in the long term. So Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, a parrot saying, oh, we get some more sleep and that it's really true. For sure. Critical. You know, and I was just reflecting back to how a few minutes ago you were talking about how surgeons tend to tend to feel very isolated with this and that you just can't show any sort of weakness. So there really is an important interpersonal element in both caring for oneself. And the thing is, if, if you're feeling this way, you are not the only person right. in your hospital or, or in your surgical group. You, everybody is together in their isolation. So, yes. you know, what is better if you think about training surgeons, what could you possibly do that would be more generous for them than to actually be honest and to show up mm -hmm. as a human? Mm -hmm. Because you know what they're going into, you know what their career is going to be like in terms of the demands and the stressors. And to be able to show up as a human and give them that permission, be a role model who actually looks after their well-being and the well-being of, you know, their, their junior, uh, their, their residents or what have you. This is a really powerful thing to do. So it requires, it takes courage. You know, so along with those other principles of, you know, never getting tired and uh, being self-sufficient, et cetera, why don't we add a fifth one of being courageous? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, which means doing things that aren't, that you're not comfortable with. About the truth. Like how about actually showing up in front of your colleagues and saying, you know what? I am feeling really afraid. Yeah. And uh, who else is? And, and what can we do together? What, what are some changes we could make to make this work environment uh, more um, enabling? Yeah, I, I've been working with the University of Pittsburgh uh, cardiothoracic surgical residents. And as an outsider, I come in and I can talk freely about you know, what I mm -hmm. have experienced and, and it's created an incredible connection with them. Mm. And it's just a side story of, you know, the almost desperate loneliness of uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, of some cardiothoracic surgeons. One of the, a cardiac surgeon who was taking a new job uh, reached out to me on LinkedIn, wanting to know if he could talk to me for a little bit about, you know, what strategies he might use in his new job to be a better leader. Mm -hmm. And so we connected on Zoom. And I started asking him about his life and his career. And, you know, two hours later, he revealed that he'd never had a conversation where he revealed so much. And he wrote to me later, you've helped relieve the numbness of my soul. Wow. And, and that's not to say, because I'm not like a professional coach like you, mm -hmm. but the simple act of giving him space where he, you know, he would, he would trusted me. He knew I wouldn't reveal him. Uh, you know, it was such an incredible relief for him. Totally. 
Yeah. And and yeah. you can actually do, I mean, potentially imagine for people listening that you can have that kind of impact in the workplace. Yes. And that you can huge. have the kinds of conversations with colleagues where you appreciate, where you you intentionally apply a positive lens, you act compassionately with other people, you seek to be a positive energizer. Uh, you can change people's lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. That gets to one of my other questions or topics for you. And that is the role of quote, positive psychology, mm -hmm. uh, both on yourself and in the workplace and your teams. And, you know, you've written about teams and, you know, the role of leadership and teams in preventing burnout and creating a more of a thriving workplace place where people want to be. And so I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts on on gratitude, you know, compassion, psychological safety, you know, these topics and uh, what I consider to be their incredibly powerful application in our personal lives and also in how we feel at work. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all like uh, psychological safety is kind of the hot topic of the moment. Although, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Amy Edmondson did her uh, dissertation research uh, decades ago, and there's been a yeah. ton since then. But She's got a new book out that's really caught fire and, um, you know, lots and lots of people are, are talking about this right now, but it comes down to, you know, do people trust me? Do I feel that I can trust the people that I work with, that I can show up as myself, that I can actually, you know, offer a conflicting opinion that people are going to value what I have to say and, and psychological safety is vitally important. Um, you know, it's not a, nice to have when it's, you know, absent in a, in a flight, uh, in a cockpit crew, you know, planes are more likely to crash mm -hmm. when it's absent in a surgical team. The outcome is more likely to be poor, more mistakes. Uh, so yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that is vitally important. And, um, you know, it's interesting, just as you said earlier, some people just the, just the word positive, some people are kind of like, <laughs> ah, I don't have time for this crap, I know, but, crap yeah. You know, yeah, but, but essentially, um, you know, this is rigorous psychological research that has kind of come under this umbrella. You know, the, the reason why this term gets applied is, uh, you know, that there used to be a, a much greater amount of, um, psychological research on, uh, kind of anomalies and um, clinical, right. uh, you know, situations, et cetera. And so psych positive psychology is kind of the, the psychology of optimal functioning. Yeah. So if you, are you interested in, you know, having optimal functioning, uh, you know, I yes. sort of feel like, <laughs> uh, you know, again, kind of my bill of rights is I really think, I truly believe that everybody has the right and the capacity to experience work as something that is enlivening. You yes, know, we have this too. one life. One and life. if you, you know, got a diagnosis today that said, you've got a month, would you say, okay, that is pretty heavy, but at least I can say that the way that I'm working and living right now is how I want to be living and working. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the question. And the thing is, you don't know when that day is going to come. No, I don't right. ever want to come to a day where it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought I had another 30 years. I wouldn't have been living and working like this if I had known. Well, then if you 
would answer that question, no, this isn't what I want, then, then change something. That's really the question that you should ask yourself almost every day. Yeah. I and mean, you, you mentioned about, you know, each day, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, right. And it can be really tough. You know, it can be really tough to make a change. Some people are very binary. They think it's like either I keep doing exactly what I'm doing or I kind of give it all up and go live on a beach somewhere. Like those are the only two options. That's not true. Right. Um, you know, there are, there are small steps you can take and, you know, I don't know much about the profession of cardiothoracic surgery, but I'm sure there are very different types of in, environments to be employed in and, uh, you know, different qualities of, of surgical groups, et cetera. Maybe I don't, you know, I don't know, this is, this is your domain, but I would imagine that, um, you know, it's not like you get this, this one pressure cooker and that's the only option you have. Yeah, no, there are a variety of options, but, um, you know, the gratitude thing, just on a, on a personal side note, Mm. when I first was told about gratitude, oh, you should write in a journal every morning. I, of course, thought that was BS because, you know, what are mm-hmm. writing three things going to do? But then I was sent a video that showed uh, some of the science behind gratitude. And I was, yeah. okay. I, so the typical thing that captures, you know, a physician like me is, you know, data. Yep. And, and so that was a, a real wake up for me. And I remember, okay, I, I, I'm going to start instituting this around the house, right? Yep. And with nobody knows, I'm, I'm kind of in my little <laughs> stealth mode. And I started saying thank you to my wife more frequently for some of the little things. So I'd look for something to say thank you, the things he took, because mm-hmm. she's a physician too, a high risk obstetrician. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, with all of our kids and everything, life became very transactional, you know, I mean, sure. it, it, just, it just slowly evolved into that. Yeah. And I, I remember when I started saying thank you for some of the little things that you do, it was self, she'd give me kind of a look and I felt so awkward. But I can state categorically that probably is one of the most powerful practices that has had such an impact on our marriage. It's mm-hmm. it's literally there's other forces going on, but it's created a much greater sense of intimacy, trust, and kind of belief in each other's good intentions. You know, yep. I mean, it's it's so remarkable. Uh, I just absolutely can't say enough about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that gratitude, both in terms of a personal practice. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that for me is a kind of a a shift that I can make on the fly. I have sort of a number of strategies and tools I've developed over the years. One is breathing. You know, if I notice Mm -hmm. I'm holding my breath or I'm noticing tension in my body that I just take a a few deep breaths. And if I'm noticing a real kind of jaded, cynical, negative, um, Mm -hmm. mindset that, uh, kind of thought of, what am I grateful for is a great way to switch that. It sure and interpersonally, is. as you're saying, recognizing and appreciating other people is a profoundly powerful thing to do. It's, it's like nuclear. Yeah. It, it yeah. literally is, you know? Yeah. And I bet yeah. you have listeners of this podcast who think, oh, sure, I have all of these amazing skills, you know, I can save lives, etc. But people don't even see me, they just see the white coat, they just see my degrees, etc. What a, you know, nobody actually sees me the human being, I, I would bet I'm just I'm guessing, I think I think you're absolutely right. No, no um, like you see a pilot, yeah, 
or you know anybody right. in a particular profession that's so identity driven. Totally. Yeah. I'm just coming, what, something is coming to mind right now. I think it was maybe Rachel Naomi Remen or one of these other super wise people who was sharing, or, or so, it was somebody who was a psychotherapist and it had, she had this unbelievable confluence of patients. And of course, patient uh, therapist confidentiality, she was not able to reveal this, but she had two patients in her practice. One person was a terminal cancer patient who had kind of exhausted all of his treatment options and was um, continuing to see his oncologist just to have the human contact because the patient was completely alone in his life. And even though there was no point in, in pursuing these, he had developed this relationship over time and, and the, yeah, this was the most important relationship in his life. Simultaneously, she was treating the oncologist who was in a severe depression and was feeling that his life was meaningless Good and grief. that he was having, you know, no positive impact on another human. And here wow. she, you know, knew that in fact, he was the reason that this other person was living. Yeah. Yeah. Just because of his person, his human contact. That yeah. sounds like he'd lost his way and he was suffering from the very yeah. things we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Obviously in talking to you, there's a lot we can do from a personal agency standpoint. Mm -hmm. We can do the positive psychology habits. We can breathe, we can exercise, sleep, meditation. And then within the context of work, it's not a binary thing. There's a lot of things we can do within that in terms of perspective shifting. You wrote a beautiful article about telling yourself a different story. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there, and focusing on things that energize us. And so those are all crucial things, but there are times, and you experience this where, you know, the pedal does hit the metal. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, if you could describe a little more about your personal experience with it and mm -hmm. the things that led up to it and how did you then recognize that it was time to go mm. and, and really switch out and, and how difficult that must've been to yep. change like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and for me, I had actually conducted research on burnout. I mean, I knew the science of burnout. Mm -hmm. I, my, my eyes were open. So I was unhappy in this uh, position for quite some time. Um, but, you know, some of the factors that were really tough for me to navigate were, you know, I had really committed myself to this profession. Uh, I really had a deep sense of identification as an academic leaving that particular job probably would have meant another international relocation. And it had been a pretty big deal for us to move our family to a different continent. Yeah, sounds like um, it would be. And we, we actually really <laughs> liked the area. It was just that I couldn't stay in that job much longer. And I knew there weren't gonna be other options in that area for me academically. You know, so it was like, am I gonna end up you know, getting a job, a place that we don't want to move to. Um, and it was, you know, we were a dual career couple kind of needing both of our incomes. So that is really tough for people. How do you, if you're thinking of leaving your job, what are the financial uh, ramifications? What are the ramifications in terms of your professional identity? How are you going to explain this to people? What else are you going to do? Um, so for me, I kind of the, the little bargain I was making with myself was, you know, can I cope? Can I find strategies to cope 
to kind of still have a meaningful life to take my vacations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, finally it, it became clear that I, I just, I didn't want, I, what I happened to me was I saw myself turning into a person that I didn't want to be. I saw myself turning into this miserable, cynical, negative uh, person, which was not, it was not me. And, uh, you know, so I was able to engineer what I do now is similar in many respects to what I did previously. I continue to teach. I continue to do a lot of leadership development um, training plus the executive coaching. So I made a sort of in a move into an adjacent uh, field and just decided to follow my own research advice and, and reconstruct my career by Uh, building it around activity that I find fulfilling and engaging and that I can perform in conditions that I know facilitate my performance. Correct. So I was quite intentional about doing that. And so uh, if if I could, can you kind of give us a little more detail about when you really realized what was it? Was there one moment or was it a concatenation of of yeah, I can. Uh, I mean, there were a few sort of poignant moments. I can remember kind of going to my doctor and just br- just bursting into tears. And I was sitting in the waiting room and, you know, I was just weeping just uncontrollably. And he kind of there was somebody else there. And I remember he came out and kind of looked at me, looked at the other person and kind of went. I think this is going to take a while. So is it okay if I just take the other patient first? <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy had come over to me and he said, oh my God, you know, is there, a, can I help you? And I said to him, there's nothing you can do to help nothing me. You can do. <laughs> like, so it was just sort of like, okay, train wreck. Um, uh, and and well, another thing that happened to me, and I never get sick, but I, at one point in time, I just kept getting sick and I had to kind of cancel my class, which I had never done before. Um, you know, it was like one kind of, you know, illness rolling into the next. And I thought, whoa, I'm really not myself at all. And you, you so. wrote, and I'll share the quote since it is written uh, about your, your normally always supportive husband saying in a counseling session, mm-hmm. I have no more empathy for you. Yep. And, and, and so that, I mean, that was powerful. That, that was the wake that. up call. Yep. Yeah, and I appreciate the fact that you actually put that in print. It, yeah. it's, it's just really powerful. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about the impact on our loved ones, the people closest to us of this of this whole problem? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, it was like I was just melting away, kind of my life force, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was just I was not kind of my positive, um, upbeat, uh, energizing self at all. And it was really tough for my family. I mean, my husband is like, good Lord, you know, do you ever stop complaining? You know, my daughter was, our youngest daughter was 16 at the time and pretty high spirited, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I think so my (laughs) kind of my husband and my daughter just kind of went off. My husband was like, well, I can't do anything for my wife, but at least I can, you know, kind of look, uh, you know, look after my daughter. And then I felt sort of abandoned by the two of them and my own kind of negativity, et cetera. So yeah, no, it was really, it was really rough in, in the family. Um, It is very hard to kind of be the, the partner, the parent, the friend that you want to be when you're feeling so diminished 
And yeah. so it really does, uh, you know, people who are burned out um, tend not to be very good bosses because that kind of rolls downhill, you know, your energetic impact on other people. It's tough to motivate people, to give people a sense of enthusiasm about the work you're doing when you're, when you're not feeling it yourself uh, and in your family. Similarly, you know, when you're burned out, you tend to come home and kind of hit the couch, grab a glass of wine, grumble, don't bother me, I need to decompress. You know, you're not the person who comes home and says, hey, let's, you know, let's connect and share what we've done during the day. Yeah. Uh, so it absolutely, it absolutely has a huge, you know, and kind of the more people that you're interdependent with, the greater the ripple effects of burnout interpersonally. Yeah, it poisons the well of our lives, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And yep. You know, so to, that it can happen to somebody like you, and of course, you know, it's like psychiatrists or whatever, people that know about these things, but intellectually knowing it and then experiencing it is another, sure. another story. And that's what gives you so much power for the rest of us. Um, well, I try and do, I, I feel like it's important for me to have credibility to actually practice the things that I encourage yes. other people to do. Yeah, Absolutely. So yeah, that's been a great um, thing about becoming a coach. I, you know, kind of my, my first PhD was from Cornell and then it's a kind of a second, you know, equal amount of education from all of the, the conversations I've had and the stories yeah, I've no listened kidding. to. I got yeah. a much deeper understanding of people's experiences at work. I, I just thought I'd pose this, this idea to you and see what your take on it would be. We, you know, people can go to law school, they can get their PhD, we can go to medical school and residency, and you've got a very structured uh, process for acquiring knowledge and skills. And it's very clear what the path is. And as I alluded to earlier on about the personal operating system, you know, if we just use residency as a, as a, as a metaphor, you know, there is no damn residency for how to live and be in the world, right? Mm. It's, it's all sort of whatever, you know, it's a, it's a luck of circumstances and, you know, the environment we're in. If you were going to design a residency for someone about how to live a good life, and as you say, to keep the life force within you bright and shining, mm. both at work and at home, what would that residency look like to you? Wow, Michael. That is immense. Maybe a bit too big. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tremendous question. That's the seed of a book right there or something. Yeah, it probably is. Gosh. Um, I think it is, you know, first really being in touch with the reality of your current experience. So I have had a few formative things in my life all as an adult, actually, that have been part of my personal residency. You and I spoke offline uh, about mm -hmm. the experience of being uh, children of alcoholics. So for me, right. a big, um, something that I, I got a lot from was the fellowship of participating in a support group for families and friends of alcoholics. I learned an awful lot in that about kind of self-compassion and having a sense of what you can control and what you can't control and of the power of sharing your experience with other people and having some simple kind of practical uh, frames to apply uh, that are that are liberating. So that was really powerful for me. 
Um, I started practicing yoga when I moved to France. I'm no great yogi. You know, I'm a kind of middle-aged woman who, um, you know, has more aches and pains than I'd like to admit. But there was something there about really understanding the powerful connection between mind and body and how transformative breathing can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something that has left a real mark on me. And I use that. In fact, in all of my leadership training, I always do some breath work and right. kind of body scan stuff and helping people to understand, you know, the impact of different hormones. So that was really powerful. And I have a, a practice of meditation, which again is nothing big. It's like 15 minutes every morning, but it is a practice. Uh, it is a part of my every single day. That's been important. I've also been a daily exerciser since I was a mm-hmm. teenager mm-hmm. and I am you know, have a very strong connection with nature. So I have engineered my career and life such that on most days, I do spend two hours hiking in the mountains. Wow, lovely. And that is, you know, both for kind of my creativity. I mean, that's what I do if I'm stuck on something that I'm working on. uh, And I can feel, you know, I have this mind body connection, I feel I feel myself growing irritated and frustrated, I feel myself being restless physically and I head out and I, you know, get all kinds of ideas. I stop along the way. I send myself little emails on the phone or I make voice memos with like the ideas that are yes, coming to nice. me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I come back in a state of centeredness. So if I, you know, my husband sometimes will send me out, he's like, you need to go for your hike. I'm time to go for a hike. <laughs> But you got to come back. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I, it, you know, you're talking a lot about a deep level of self-awareness in, yes. in so much of this. And uh, in the residency, I would be make that a, a fundamental part of, of the entire Absolutely. enterprise. It's something that I really lacked a lot in my earlier years because there was this cloak of, of, success based on what I was doing. And therefore I don't need to worry about the rest of it. Everything Mm -hmm. is working until it didn't work anymore. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Self-inquiry, curiosity, you know, so again, kind of approaching everything you're doing as this is a, this is an experimental process. Every single experience that you have positive or negative, you can learn it as you can use it as a learning opportunity, as a, as an exercise to try something to experiment. Yeah. So I think that would be another foundation of the residency. Just, just to show you the shift in, in my thinking previously, you know, the path for my children was you go into a private school. Now you're going to college. Then you get your work, you know, your yep. or advanced degree. I convinced my daughter. I, now I tell them everything is experimental. You try things, you learn, you, yep. you know, you move on. And, you know, I talked her into taking a, a gap year you know, so my whole attitude and it's really, it's, it's a much better process. You know, that, that whole idea of everything is experimental, you know, it's just living totally. and, and learning as we go along. Yeah, totally. There are so many people I talk to who are in their twenties and are terrified yes. that they're not going to find the right work for them, or they're not going to find their true passion, et cetera. And if you can kind of embrace the, you know, there's lots of possibilities. There's lots. not one right thing out there for anybody. No, right. yeah. so the more you know about yourself, about what energizes you, about what your strengths are, 
And the less tightly you hold to some preformed idea of exactly what your life is supposed to be like, the more likely you are to be able to craft the alignment that's going to help you to be your best self, yeah, help you to have a positive self. experience. Well, is there, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't, Monique? I don't think so. Well, uh, I, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been a real delight and uh, learned so much listening to you. And I, I just know that your, your uh, experience and the comments on the podcast today are going to really resonate with so many of our surgeons. So thank you I so much. I am absolutely delighted. I really encourage everyone to, um, you know, to lean into uh, self-awareness and mm-hmm. thinking differently, thinking about their experience. And if anybody wants to be in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or at my website or anywhere on, just Google me, I'm everywhere. Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you. So <laughs> they could reach out to you at LinkedIn or, or your sure. website, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good, yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice okay. talking with you. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.